Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos Reviews of the Harry Potter books. Today we're discussing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because we're a bunch of Yanks. (laughs) I'm Arnie. And Stuart. And Brock. And welcome back to Books and Nachos. It has been a while since we've put out a show, but we are very excited to be covering Harry Potter over on the Gold Donation series at NowPlayingPodcast.com and felt these are... Some of the most popular books of all time. I think the Bible is still number one, but Harry Potter may be number two or number three. The Satan's Bible. (laughs) My sister thought so. So many people can't read these books because of their religion, Arnie. So I think the Bible is going to be ahead of it for a while. All right. Well, you know what? Let's just face it. The Bible's been in print longer. And, you know, if you adjust for inflation, the Bible's really got it going. Yeah, we're not reviewing the Bible, but <laughs> something probably almost as meaningful for, I would say, millennials, Gen Z, perhaps, but not my generation. I just want to put it out there. I was in my mid-20s when this hit bookshelves. I heard all of this about, like, people reading a book about a boy wizard. I'm like, yeah, I'm reading Infinite Jest. I'm, like, <laughs> I wasn't nostalgic for childhood. I knew no children. My brother hadn't had children yet. This whole phenomenon, when it was literally just a literary sensation prior to any movies, totally escaped me. Well, Stuart, I'm around the same age as you, and instead of reading Proust, I decided to read Harry Potter. When I was temping at a law firm right after I finished school, there's a woman I was working with who was so excited. It was the summer of 2000, and book four was about to come out, and she was rereading Chamber of Secrets. I was like, what are you reading there? She's like, you haven't heard of Harry Potter? You haven't heard of Harry Potter? It's the greatest thing. You got to read this. I'm like, it's a kid's book. Why am I going to run read that? And the next day, she brought in Sorcerer's Stone for me to read. And at the temp job, it was feast or famine. It was a really busy day or it wasn't. And that happened to be a very slow day. And so I was reading it in after lunch. And by five o'clock, I said to her, um, do you mind if I take this home to, to keep reading this? And I burned through that book like you couldn't believe. After she finished Chamber of Secrets, I borrowed that, read that. And after that, the temp job ended. So I had a call around to my friends. Who has book three? And my buddy had book three and book four by the time that time. And after I finished reading the books, I went to the Strand downtown in, in New York City and bought all four hardcover copies and reread them. And that summer, I met the woman who had become my wife. She hadn't read them. I gave her the books. And she devoured them. So even though I'm not the target age for the books originally, I am—I was in my 20s. I am one of those folks who got swept up in the amazing world of Harry Potter, even in my 20s. And that continued all the way through book seven and beyond. Yeah, I heard about that. It always shocked me to hear that there were like people my age without kids that like it was like wizard crack. They're just like, not only did they read it, but then they were like, oh my God, did you read it? You need to read it. Do it, do it, do it. I'm like, I'm not succumbing to this peer pressure. No, but I have. I've read it for today. First time. So when podcasts first started, when I first met Arnie, 
with Star Wars Action News. I was also listening to the Potter podcast because book six or book seven hadn't come out yet. And there were all these theories about what's Horcrux is going to be this and that. It was really kind of fun to listen to podcasts theorize about what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. I was really into it. It was a lot of fun. I came about this a different way. I hadn't heard of Harry Potter at all until summer of the year 2000, when all of a sudden I'm going to the bookstore for the latest Star Wars novel, and there is this massive display for something called the Goblet of Fire. I don't know what this is, but I go home and I'm watching the news that stores can't keep this in stock. It just lines out the door, and I'm like, you know, anything that encourages kids to read, that's great. Now let me read my highly literary Han Solo novel, please. (laughs) (laughs) So, fast forward to 2001 when the movie came out, I was very curious about the movie. We'll talk about it on Now Playing, but I ended up reading the book before watching that movie, and I was anxious to know what all the hype was about, and so I read the book, and I was like, okay, I have uh, enough. I've read (laughs) this book. I now know what it is. I don't need to go forward six more novels. I don't need the huge 870-page book. I read this one that was perfectly reasonable size and called it a day. Now, we'll talk about it as we go through books and nachos. That resolution didn't stay. I have read all seven of these books, the later ones as they were published, and am rereading them for these podcasts. Okay, so you both, interesting. One, we had an addict, and one, we had someone who was like, what is this that's supplanting my addiction of Star Wars? And then eventually grew to like, at least some of them, it sounds like. But, okay, so I'm coming to this fresh. I get to ask all the questions. I'll start with basics, things that I could probably figure out if I just Wikipedia'd it, but (laughs) you're here. (laughs) J.K. Rowling. Did she have any success before this? Is this her one and only thing? This is her debut novel. Oh, shoot. And it took her five years to write it. Okay. And then what I love is when she took it to agents, they didn't want it because it was too long. No kid's book should be as long as this first one. There's some irony in that. I don't think she'll ever listen to that advice again. But yeah, this was her first book and she's done a couple of adult aimed books since then, but really, eh, is it fair to say One Trick Pony? Well, actually, we're reading a book now called The Christmas Pig by J.K. Rowling. It's another kid's book. The four of us were reading it on Christmas time. We did not finish it in time for Christmas Day. We tried to, and then things got away from us. So she went back to kids' books this year as of this recording. We have not read the adult books either. But Stuart, what's interesting about that publishing, Arnie said uh, 12 different publishers rejected it. The reason it got picked up was the publisher that actually went for it gave the first chapter to his eight-year-old daughter who couldn't get enough of it. So after his daughter liked it, he decided to read it, and he got swept up in it as well. His secretary got swept up in it. There's various stories about how it got to be, but once it was published, it took a little while for it to catch on, but once it caught on, it caught on. And then it was on the bestseller list. This book took, I think, 11 months to get to number one on the bestseller list of the New York Times. And before I get off on this, what's really fun, kind of fun about this book is this book, the next book, and the next book clogged the New York Times bestseller list for so long that by the time The Goblet of Fire came out, 
they decided to start making a new children's book New York Times bestseller list. And while and that's why today we have young adult bestseller lists, mystery, science fiction books, etc., all the different genre ones, because of Harry Potter staying on that bestseller list for like years. Yeah, that's true. I There was no such thing in the 90s as young adult fiction. Like, you grew up and you read adult books. When you were a kid, you read a kid's book. I'm a late bloomer to the concept that there's an all-ages 12 to 80 kind of book you can write. Yeah, you got kids' books, you got adult books, and somewhere in the middle, you've got Judy Bloom. You think Judy Bloom counts? She did have tiger eyes, but <laughs> she was kind of mostly a kid's author. Well, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We're back to the Bible. Uh, so... <laughs> I think what's really great about this series, too, is that as the books got on and they got darker, the kids, the kids got older, the books got older, too, which is kind of brilliant. So of the adults that were reading it, they saw a lot of thematic elements that weren't present in the first book, or maybe they were present, but they weren't as a forefront. Which, to preview my thoughts, I feel like these books get better as they go. Stuart, if you haven't read the future novels yet, I'll just say that, yes, once they start getting darker... I feel like they got better and I became a little more interested in the topic. I'm putting a pin in that thought and just going back to the idea that you could read the first chapter and instantly want to know more. What was it about this concept that felt so novel? Because Boy Wizard, I mean, we grew up with D&D. Like, I don't feel like that was an explosion <laughs> of a mind. Like, no one ever thought of this before. Like, what was so novel about it? What always gets me about that story, about that first chapter, the first chapter is Uncle Vernon. It's not really mm -hmm. Harry, you know? It's so, why do I care? The chapter that's really magical is the cat that turns into the witch and Dumbledore is there and they put the kid on the doorstep. That's what's magical. That's what starts to become magical about it. What's so great about the opening of this book is, I don't know how she did it, but for me... I felt it was accessible, but a little bit different. So when you get to like the second or third chapter in with the snake, right? We know he's going to be a wizard because we read the back of the book, right? He doesn't know yet. But it's kind of like, okay, she kind of takes her time with it. And she brings us into it like Harry is being brought into it. And I think that's what got me with it the first time I read it. And on repeat readings, I kind of like the clues that she's already putting out for future books that are already here that she may or may not have planned as little tidbits, but it's kind of cool to see how it all connects. But Stuart, it's so accessible to get into. That's what I think is really helpful about these first few chapters. You say accessible. I say infantile. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is really rudimentary reading. This is easy reading. You know, I mentioned Star Wars novels. At least those have some words in them that maybe I want to look up using my Kindle dictionary from time to time because they're being written by adults for adults and don't fear multisyllabic words. This, I read this for this podcast in about three and a half hours cover to cover because it goes down like a glass of water. There's nothing to chew on here. You say easy reading... But if there are words like Ravenclaw and Dumbledore and Hagrid, <laughs> I don't find that to be easy reading. I wonder if the charm that some people are going to gravitate to, we always talk about this, lore can be as repellent as it is enticing. And if you, I guess, are the right age and feel that, yes, Harry is a superhero and it's giving you the fantasy that you could become one as well. You don't have to go to school anymore. You could just learn to do your superpowers. I suppose you want to learn all the vocabulary of all these characters, but that is 
part of the struggle. And you're right, she does kind of ease you into it, but it is, for a short book, I still struggled to learn all the names of all the characters. The other thing I'm going to bring up is, I know we're looking at a seven-book sacred cow here. So understand, when I start hacking into it, I'm talking about this first book only. When I say, other than some peculiarities with the lore that you talk about, Stuart... When I read this book, I'm taken back to the childhood fiction I read in grade school, and it all seems of a type. What makes this book a resounding success, whereas a million books like it languish on bookshelves? Because in my mind, this is a story, a wish-fulfillment fantasy of any child who feels like their parents don't treat them well to suddenly realize something's going to come in and you are magical from birth and you're rich and you're innately better than everybody else and you have been blessed a Mary Sue for this whole novel which is fine for children's literature because it's wish fulfillment but why this one I have a theory on that so yes there's plenty of movies and books out there about a woman who or look, look at Luke Skywalker, right? He was actually Jedi royalty. He was living in Tatooine, right? To bring back Star Wars to this. So every generation has a story like this they gravitate to. This one took place in modern day. A lot of those other ones, like, say, what, The Lord of the Rings was, like, in a whole different world. And completely, and this guy goes on this quest, The Hobbit. It was a big book. The Hobbit was a big book for years for children's books. I think The Phantom Tollbooth had a similar kind of feeling to, like, a mystical kind of place that I went to when I was a kid. This one, I'm thinking for kids. So when my daughter read it for the first time when she was in third grade, she completely got into it as well. It does take place in modern day even though it's not modern day for her, right? There's no cell phones in this book, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think it's part of it, Arnie. I also think that there's something... I hate to say this. There's something magical <laughs> about being a wizard or a witch. Also, my daughter got really into Hermione. Like, I don't know what it is about Hermione that little girls go towards, but a lot of people really gravitate towards Hermione, whereas I consider myself more a Ron or a Harry guy, she just adores Hermione. And I think that also helps, it's more accessible because the kids see themselves in these three characters. Yeah, I tried to think about, like, yeah, I was a big reader when I was growing up, loved and read a lot of young fiction that I've never gone back to, but did really enjoy and think it's good. I'm sure I would have liked this. And particularly if it were popular, if everyone in the class were reading it, I would have read it. That's the peer pressure alone. I would have done it at that age. It has the feel of a children's author that I really did like, Roald Dahl. You know, you think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, same kind of like, the kid suffers first, right? Like, you have to be in exile. You really build up the main character as someone that has been deprived, and then they get to inherit the Chocolate Factory. But that happens pretty early. If this is a seven-part saga... Like, Harry goes from being miserable boy living underneath the stairs of his aunt and uncle to being a superstar, not just a wizard, but the most famous and renowned wizard, adult or child, within 100 pages. It's a lot to take in for that poor kid. But again, we as the readers are taken in with him as he is. And I think that's, even though it is written simply, I think it really 
allows the reader to be brought in because there's so much information. It's like a huge data dump. One chapter after another after another. There's a new thing in a new place in Diagon Alley and the Leaky Cauldron and Quidditch. There's so many new things every single chapter that I think it has to start this simply, Arnie, to bring us in so we can dip our toes in deeper and deeper and deeper till we finally get into the pool. You've got a good point with that. I hadn't considered that even when I started reading this in 2001, some of this was in the vernacular. I may not have known what Diagon Alley is and Quidditch, but yes, we do have a point of view character. You know, it, it's new to him as it is to us, so much like... You know, most fiction, when you're entering a magical world or a different world, you need to have a point of view character where it's new to them as well. So she does a good job of creating that point of view. My problem is in this book, I never like Harry that much because he doesn't have to work for anything. He one-ups his bullies. He is beloved by all his teachers. He has... One teacher who doesn't like him, but every other teacher thinks he's the bee's knees and starts breaking all kinds of rules like, we don't allow first years in Quidditch unless it's you, Harry, because you're that good. You know, I just end up not liking him that much. I get that. This is going back to what I was saying earlier. That's why you push the oppression. At the beginning. Nobody likes Oliver Twist either. I mean, if I had a soup ladle, I'd probably conk him on the head. He's just annoying. But <laughs> the point is, he's so much abuse is implying that he deserves empathy. And if I'm not playing for comedy, yes, I realize that children shouldn't be abused. Here he goes through a lot in that first hundred pages, and then it's easy street. I agree with you. Eventually, once the thing gets rolling, there should be more internal conflict with him. I actually feel like the big mistake, I would say, and who am I to tell a woman that's a multi-billionaire how to write her story, but I think that going to wizard school shouldn't have solved all his problems. The thing I'd point out about children's literature, when Dorothy goes to Oz, when Alice goes to Wonderland, when Charlie goes to the Chocolate Factory, there's still danger for them. There's still a lot of threat, and they feel strange and oppressed, and it's not easy. And I do feel like, I mean, I know that there's a subplot. We're going to talk about Voldemort at some point, but I feel like it is rather easy for Harry to accomplish all that he needs to in book one. What I say to that, Stuart, is that I think Hogwarts is an insurance nightmare. Uh, I think there's so many problems at this school that my parents probably wouldn't let me play Quidditch for the same reason they wouldn't let me play football. The fact that they said in the book, I believe, that a kid broke his wrist might have been in the movie. I'm, I'm getting confused in this one part, but there's bludgers that attack kids on broomsticks high in the sky. There's a three-headed dog. There's a place called the Forbidden Forest, which you're not supposed to go to because there's all sorts of bad creatures in it. There are so many dangers, not, not to mention, of course, a teacher is literally trying to kill him. There's a teacher he thinks is trying to kill him, and there's Voldemort there too. So while, yes, you're not wrong that he seems to have a, a little bit of an easier life, there's still plenty of dangers for this kid. I think part of it is also that it's like an origin story movie. When you have Superman the movie, he's growing up through Smallville. So the first half of that movie is him growing up and how he gets to be who he is. And the second half is kind of a light, easy thing for him to solve. Same thing here. He has to get, you got to get him there. 
explain the whole world, and then you get to have a mini-adventure at the end in the world. I agree with you that this is mostly about setting up greater concerns that probably will grow into the other books, and I need to be patient and just accept chapter by chapter learning about the lore. And I more or less am, but I just... To the point about all the dangers of Hogwarts, adult Stuart and child Stuart would have preferred more actual threat to the main character. I'm the kid that read Stephen King in third grade. You know what I mean? Like, I really, maybe it feels dangerous to some people, but I'm like, yeah, that's sort of like maybe kind of dangerous that they have this forest, but none of that stuff is really scary. None of it's really hurting. Like, I wish it did. I wish it did have the Roald Dahl kind of, you know, Roald Dahl is a funny children's author because he actually hated children. And you can feel that in his writing. <laughs> and this one, I feel it's more coddling than than menacing. Well, you mentioned Roald Dahl. A lot of comparisons were made to him when these books came out by literary critics. The thing that got me when I was thinking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is how episodic that book was. I probably read that book 20 times as a kid. I loved that book and The Glass Elevator. Oof. <laughs> I can't help it. I like the whole- That second one is unreadable. <laughs> yes. I haven't read it since I was seven. I'll let you know if I go back. But maybe when we do our Charlie and the Chocolate Factory retrospective series, we'll come back to books and nachos. But, you know, each room of the Chocolate Factory had its own dangers and took out its own mm -hmm. kid and all of that. In a sadistic way. Like you enjoyed watching children be hurt. Here, I feel like we're also in a very episodic story, though. I You mention you want more darkness. I'm an adult reader. I guess what I want is more plot, because this feels like, you know, very like Dickens. This feels like each of these little anecdotes could be published in highlights or something, and this could be an uh, ongoing serialized story for children. To me... Both times I've read this book now, my thing is there's not enough Voldemort here. You start off with Voldemort is leaving a scar on a child's head and killed his parents, and then Voldemort's going to show up at a, what I feel is a very rushed ending. But in the middle, there's just a whole lot of potions class and chess games and Christmas Day and all this stuff sneaking into find magic mirrors. There's just a lot of little stuff that gives the book a bit of an aimless feel. Or episodic. I mean, think about it as a bedtime story. You read it chapter by chapter. It gives you little nuggets. You don't want a big overarching story because kids' attention spans, they're not going to sit and read the book start to finish in, in one, like you did. They're not going to do that. They're going to get nightly little driblets. So that works better for kids' literature. I also think that, again, they're setting up here a lot. So, again, they have a mini-adventure in this book because they're setting everything up. But the character development, as we know, will come. It will come. All right. Without spoilers about what happens in future books, okay. one of my biggest curiosities about all the stuff that's here is the need for the four houses. It's not immediately clear to me why we have four houses. There's obviously, like, the bad house. Like, if you're named Slytherin and you have snakes on your flag and, like, the rotten kid is going to be, like, instantly put in that, we get, like, that's the bad kids and someone to root against. And if you're Gryffindor, which is what, half a Griffin's half eagle, half lion, you're going to be brave and cool and have flying ability and all that. So you have the good guys and bad guys. What are the other two houses and why would anyone want to be in them? 
they're a tad bit superfluous in that when you get sorted into one of them or people are fans of them. I don't really understand it myself in that why anyone would want to be a Hufflepuff. Yeah, that's like the Lambda 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 of Hogwarts, right? (laughs) But, you know, there's more students at the school. Perhaps they can make a whole other series like, you know, of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Hufflepuff who was there while Harry was there. You may be able to do that. Oh, but here's what I would say. We have three other characters that he's going to care about. It's Hermione, Ron, and Malfoy. Have each of them be in one of the houses, right? Like this simple problem. We don't have a house where all our favorite characters are stuffed into. We have an example of every house represented by all these characters that are going to interact throughout the year. So my daughter over dinner tonight when I told her we were recording this, says, now Hermione probably should have been a Ravenclaw. And the author actually said that, but you know what? It's easier for them to all be in the common room together. Otherwise, you have to go all the way to her house and get her and have to come back and get her. We got to go pick up Hermione first before we can go on the invisibility cloak. So they did it for convenience. Also, your friends are going to be the ones in your class, right, Stuart? I don't think you and I would be podcasting here today if we hadn't been in second grade together. It's... You are in the same classes, and we're told each house has equal strengths and weaknesses. What they're setting up here is a class system in which your kind won't mingle or root for other kinds. What a terrible message for a kid's book. You see, and I take this as fraternities. You know, that was my go-to with this, is looking at various fraternities and Greek life in college. That's the closest thing I have to a relatable version of this. Now, Houses are a thing in British boarding schools. She did not create this for Harry Potter. Okay. This is part of British life is to have these houses. Like in elementary, the kids are already saying I'm this or that. Yeah. You're telling very impressionable young kids to get into a club and then not like the other ones. I just think it's bad. I just don't like that. I didn't like that element of it at all. I have never gone to a British boarding school, but in my research for now playing, I did read that there are things like house championships and giving points to houses. All of this isn't something J.K. Rowling came up with. This is something she adapted to a world of wizards and witches. And so... You know, again, I think what we're having here is a little bit of culture clash. The Yank doesn't understand putting an 11-year-old in a house, but... I don't. There's also some inter-house mingling later on, Stuart, so don't worry. No, again, they all go to the same class. The teachers all are representative of the different ones. So why are you so clearly saying there's a good one and a bad one and one we should like and then two we shouldn't care about and one we should hate? Like, I think a way to dramatize the houses is to have the characters we follow be in them. And I feel like that was a mistake. Not to be pro-eugenics, but it does seem like all the problems could be fixed if that sorting hat said Slytherin and you just killed the person. <laughs> wow. You guys are talking about abusive children and killing children. This is just a family podcast going on here. <laughs> well, I, I, I agree. That's the way it comes off. It shouldn't be that way. And I guess we will find out. We've already kind of hinted at the fact that there's a teacher, Snape. I Even I knew that, and I've never read a book. I'm like, oh, I know about Snape, and I know he's supposed to be a bad guy. And I knew he had gotten redeemed at some point. I didn't know it would be this book, but I knew that he would be perceived because he's Slytherin to be the enemy, and then he would be exonerated. That had been spoiled. He was too obvious a bad guy. Even my first time reading the book, not knowing who Snape was, and knowing in my head casting that that was probably going to be Alan Rickman, because I 
had seen trailers and things, I felt like he was way too obvious a villain, even for a kid's book. I didn't know who the bad guy was, but even for children's literature, this guy was way too arch to actually be our villain. Right, and so he's not the villain of this book. He's a wonderful antagonist for the three children, especially Harry throughout the series. It really does work here to set him up here as the antagonist. I'll take your word for that. But as much as I complain that Harry has things way too easy, this teacher's way too much of a dick to him. I mean, (laughs) you should really go to the headmaster and complain about this persecution. This teacher hates him, embarrasses him in front of the class, punishes indiscriminately. I feel like, I feel like I'm reading a kid's book. What can I say? Well, I mean, we all, I mean, imagine it's an office. I mean, I think you you see those heroes and villains in any kind of bureaucratic setting. And I'd go right the hell to HR over Snape being at my workplace. <laughs> Even though this is a, you know, school that's cooler than any school that anyone's ever gone to because it's about wizardry. Yeah, I think you would still have, I mean, they explain it. They have a backstory in which we are teased the idea that Snape and Harry's dad have some kind of history, some kind of rivalry that goes back. Look, I'm patient enough to say not everything's going to come into the first book. Let's talk about what the first book does offer because it's called, depending what country you read it in, the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone. First of all, why? Why the discrepancy? Honestly, because the Scholastic Publishing Company thought that American children were stupid. I mean, that's the, that's the simplest way to put it, is that they didn't think Philosopher's Stone would be enticing for children. Sorcerers are more enticing to children. That really is the simplest reason. They also Americanized some of the prose, too. If you read the British version, they're eating a crumpet. If you read the American version, they're eating a muffin. They did a translation. Who knew this book was going to blow up the way it did? <laughs> well, this is my question. Did they just change the word philosopher to sorcerer? Or did it have different qualities? Because when we finally find out about this thing, it makes gold and it lets you live immortal. Like, I think it is more sorcery than phil- I don't see a philosophical angle to this magic talisman. So I'm pretty sure the Philosopher's Stone is a concept that is outside of Harry Potter because I'm pretty sure there's an Indiana Jones novel from the 90s of which he seeks the Philosopher's Stone. And Philosopher has a more alchemist meaning in the British slang than it does here. You think philosopher in America, you're thinking Plato. Yeah. They think of it more as alchemy and the study of nature. Okay. And so it's just, again, cultural difference. Yeah, then it's not just stupidity or I'm stupid, but I feel like sorcerer is a more accurate word for Americans than philosopher. Right. This is not a philosophical stone. It's not going to sit there and debate whether existential crisis like (laughs) why is it called that because ultimately with so many things going on in this plot i don't feel like that stone is way important at all like we'll have to go a long distance to get to some character we never meet who invented it and needs it to live and will die and what's the point you could have called it harry potter and hogwarts harry potter and the magic mirror i agree i don't think this stone matters at least not in this chapter maybe next book The stone was destroyed at the end of this. I don't think we're ever seeing the stone again. And I think that it's because it's the recurring theme. It is the MacGuffin that causes Harry to get into a lot of his problems. I want more Voldemort, but there's this constant mystery. It starts 
in the early chapters with Hagrid. Hagrid's getting something out of the bank. Oh, what's the secret thing Hagrid's getting out of the bank? Oh, there's a dog. What's the dog guarding? It is as much of a through line as anything in this book. It's the tightest line there is. So if you've got to name it something, that is the thread that goes through. I wish I felt like that was the thread I was following. But again, I think Arnie's right to say this feels much more about a way of taking kids first middle school experience and turn it fantastical. It's a magical realist saved by the bell. (laughs) And what I really focus on are the sports and, you know, like I didn't like that in school. Like I didn't go out for, we didn't even have polo. So it should be said flying around and whacking balls is not even a sport America does very well. Well, I always thought that was basketball, Stuart. It's more like basketball than polo to me. Really? I mean, you're not flying around. Like, I feel like the being on the broom is like being on a horse. I understand that. But getting in the rings and how little the points count when you get it through the ring is like basketball. And when you find out the rules, because that's the thing. I'm always like, I knew this was a thing in Harry Potter. They fly around and do this thing. It doesn't matter how many hoops you score. Like, no, like it comes down to one golden ball that's zipping around and a little runt kid that's going to be, you know, fast enough to get it. Like, anybody, whatever anybody else is doing is a waste of time. So, again, over dinners, we've had this debate here in the Brock household. If a team can score enough points before the snitch is caught, then the snitch ends the game, but the other team can win. So it really is about... I mean, we've had this conversation. <laughs> They'd have to get 16, right? They'd have to get 16. Each, Yeah, you have to get 16 goals, which, again, these matches do not last that long in this book. But you know what? That's okay. But theoretically speaking, the snitch ends the game. But yes, you could win the game if you catch. I would think, percentage-wise, the majority of the teams who catch the snitch do win the game. Right. Uh, Almost probably universally. It would be a real upset if you got the snitch and still lost. At that point, you wouldn't want to catch the snitch. At that point, you would actually just want to keep the other person away from the snitch while your team tries to catch up. Because if you know you're catching that snitch and that means you lose the game, you don't take the snitch. (laughs) Right, your team wouldn't catch it. I don't know. It's a made-up sport, obviously, and maybe it means something to a lot of people. But again, not liking sports in school. This was a big part that I wish weren't. And I could have skipped this entirely. You could have cut it all. It gives the houses something to do. It gives you a reason for Malfoy and Harry. I mean, that's where their rivalry comes in. Because otherwise, Malfoy really doesn't matter in this. I imagine he's going to be a major enemy come the end. I actually think Quidditch gives Harry something to be liked for besides just being the boy who lived. What Quidditch does for Harry is gives him, he's a sports star now. He's actually, people can support him and follow him and like him beyond just, oh, he's the mystical and amazing Harry Potter. Not that he trained or worked hard for it or anything that a real sports player has to do. He just, voila, you're magical, you're the best. He's like Rey in Star Wars The Force Awakens. All of a sudden he can use the Force. Yes, I get it. Yep, and I hate Rey in The Force Awakens. Hated that part about The Force Awakens, yes. But again, I think the point of this is, for me, is that everyone in the school stops seeing Harry as a mythical, it's Harry Potter, to, oh, he's a classmate, oh, he's a sports hero, or he's a guy. He's just like us. No, 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 they don't. Now he's a mythical sports star. Now he's Michael Jordan. Like, it's like he's Jesus Christ and Michael Jordan. Oh, how terrific. Why can't he be bad at something? (laughs) Yes. It's almost annoying, really. 
Stuart, he also loses a lot of points for his house throughout the game because of his shenanigans. So he also becomes unpopular because Harry Potter, that jerk, keeps losing his house points. So he has a whole bunch of stuff going on that levels the playing field for who Harry Potter is in this book. I'm just going to say this. I feel like the formula from Cinderella on to Roald Dahl, Charles Dickens is... You make the kid oppressed until the very end. And Harry gets it too quickly, too much. First book, 100 pages in, he's just invincible. I don't know who Voldemort is, but he doesn't stand a chance (laughs) against this kid. I'm I'm worried for V. I'm really cheering Slytherin, because I assume he's a Slytherin. So we're on the same page here, Stuart. Totally. But I'll say this, you know, I've been pretty hard on the book in this regard, but the book is agreeable, you know? It goes down easy. It is funny how engaging a plotless book like this can be. If that, you know, that's a backhanded compliment from hell. But I really mean it is that it becomes a bit of a page turner because you just have fun in the world Rowling has built. And even without the movies, she has created such a visceral world that is well described without being too deep in the prose that it if you take away my adult criticism of character development it's an enjoyable read i like watching him help neville not lose his reminder ball by chasing malfoy up on the broom i like seeing him overcome this stuff it's only upon reflection that i realize how easy it is it's not ruining my enjoyment of the book so much as it's me damning this book as something adults consider literature. The parts are greater than the whole, is what I hear you say. Yes. And I guess I agree with that. Again, taken as a bedtime story, read to me on a nightly basis, it would be fun to learn new details every night and imagine this place that was kind of like my life, but much cooler. I get all of that. Here's all I would say to that. It's a page turner up to a point. I, as a child, would have read this book. I don't know if I would have run to a second book. I can't say that I left this feeling like, wow, I want more. Like, I would have liked it. I would have read it. I would have talked about it with all of my friends. But, you know, when I think about book series, I didn't read all of Narnia. I think I've made it to book three and stopped there. Like, I feel like I could have petered out on this pretty quick. And reading it as an adult... What I would just say in general, my final thoughts on this is, there are no surprises. It is exactly what you think it is going to be. And I agree with you completely. I am a completist. I have read all seven books of Narnia when I was a kid. We know this, Arnie. And all 40 books of the three investigators. And I never, I got through three of those. Hardy Boys, too. Like, I don't do, (laughs) I just, I run out of steam. Like, there's other things to read. But- When I finished this book in 2001, no part of me went, well, let's let's start the next book. I was like, okay, I guess my final thought is a big feeling of, huh, this? Now, my only belief is because this did become a New York Times bestseller in 1999, and at that point, three of the books were being published, Mm -hmm. and I know that I like book three, better than I like book two or book one to preview some books in Nacho's thoughts, I have to believe that it's actually the later books that has shown a spotlight on this early book and not that this early book 
had there never been a sequel, would have become the phenomenon that it is. So I agree with you in that. I think people like the story I started with the beginning of this is that she liked the third book. She's rereading it again because the fourth book is coming out. I think you're right about that's why, again, this book took 11 months to get to number one on the bestseller list. And it stayed there for a long time because of that. Absolutely. I agree with you. A little preview for me, too. The third book is where I would start as well because I've read these books so many times. I do enjoy this book more than you guys. I reread it for this podcast. I know the story so well that I did not enjoy it as much as the first few times I've read it. But I think it's a necessary starting point so you can get to later stuff. So I do think that much like when I watch... The Fast and the Furious 5, I want to go back and watch the first four to make sure I didn't miss anything because the Fast 5 is so much fun. But you really got to get introduced to the characters and you have to sit through 1, 2, and 3. But hey, you know, Fast 5 is great. I loved Rocky 3 as a kid and I started with Rocky 3 and I went back and watched the first two Rocky movies. And as I got older, I liked the first two movies more than 3, but I love 3. So anyway, the point is, I think Arnie is, is right on that. I don't know if it matters because this story is where it began, and this story and continues to captivate audiences, although I do think at this point it captivates children more than adults. The adults have already caught up to it, and at this point I don't think there are many 20-year-olds who haven't read Harry Potter, so it's kind of moot. But back then, especially as the books started getting darker with and stuff like that and people went back to read them, absolutely I think this book is um, is a milestone for sure. And we'll see how well it, it holds up for the test of time in another 20 years. But so far, these first 20 years is, doesn't seem to be stopping. I don't think it's this book. I'm just going to wager, and I've been told that by fans. I, I'm just going to call out my niece is in, like, she went to college this past year and joined, like, I was like, oh, are you going out for a sorority? No, she went to the Harry Potter club. I'm like, God sure. bless you. I just love it. <laughs> and, like, stay a nerd. Just stay true to yourself. But she's like, the first two are just ones you have to get through. Like, that, she promised me that because I came to her with this. And I'm like, what is this? Why are you in this club? Why is this defining for you? I don't think that it is this book. I think if you stop here, you're going to shrug and you're going to miss the phenomenon. That's, I'm just calling it out. When I read this book, I go, it's fine, but it's not phenomenal. Right. That's where I am, too. And I just want to tell listeners who do worship this book, I will be kinder, a lot kinder when we get to some future books. But I hope, again, that I haven't bruised your sacred cow's leather so that we can have you join us for more of these reviews. We'll be coming out with one each week as we review the movies in tandem over at NowPlayingPodcast.com. The big question I had after reading this is, how do you make this a movie? How do you make... It had such a unclear line through it. How do you make this into a cohesive film and fit it under a three-hour runtime? I was really curious about the translation of this from page to screen. Which is why we have our sister podcast now playing. And yeah, go ahead, be a gold-level donor. Join us there. We're tabling all our thoughts on those movies for now. This is about the books, books and nachos. But if you want to know what we think of those movies, they're out there. Uh, we'll be doing that one a week as well. Well, I enjoyed discussing this book. Clearly, I like this book more than you two, but that's okay. But I do agree on a lot of your points, and I look forward to discussing the next book, Chamber of Secrets, next time we convene. So, guys, thank you for reading with me. Until next time, support your local bookstore. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. who is, this book came out 20 years ago, right? My daughter read it when she was in third grade for the first time. She got instantly encased in it, too. Do you mean she read it for the first time when she was in third grade? Yes. Okay. She did. You want to say that again? Because you said when she was in third grade for the first time. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to hate you if you don't repeat that correctly. Her name is Billy Madison. Okay, so here, okay, I'll do it again. Um, Harry's got three other kids that he really cares about. Hermione, Ron, and Marco. Or isn't that his name? Neville. Who the hell's Marco? Neville. No, like or Draco. 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 <laughs> <laughs>